Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. six weeks in this series ahead of their time, I've been trying to make a case uh, that is not as obvious in our world as I think Scripture lays out the case for. And that idea is that God is ahead of us. God is inviting us forward into the future that God already has mapped out ahead. During the first sermon of the series, I posed a couple questions I want to come back to now. Those questions are are this. The first one of those is, is God ahead of us, inviting us into the future, or is God behind us, trying to get us to the return to the way things once were? The second question is like it. Is the best future a return to a pristine era when, when things were ideal, or is the best future actually in the future? And I hope by now you've got an answer to the questions, at least my answer to those questions. I believe that God is ahead of us, inviting us into the future, and I believe the best future is still ahead of us. For six weeks, I've talked about how the creation story, about God's call of Abram, about this covenant ceremony that God makes with his people, about the Exodus story, the law, the sacrificial system are all ahead of their time, even though when we look at them from a 21st century perspective, it can look a bit backwards and primitive. But it is also true that we are resistant to this invitation that God offers to us. We get comfortable. We get nostalgic about the things and the way they once were. And sometimes we fall in love with the way things are or were. In today's sermon, I want to take one more shot at making this case. And I'm going to do this by talking about the violence in our world and the peace that God intends to bring. Many of us have had our imaginations formed by all kinds of things that have led us to a certain perspective about how peace is brought in the world, about how conflict is restored and changed. Many of us have had our imaginations formed by culture's obsession and allegiance to violence. But what I want to suggest and what I want to share this morning is a kingdom perspective that challenges our culture's assumptions about this sort of thing. In fact, some of us in the room this morning will be challenged this morning because I think the way we've been formed by culture and our imaginations has been formed about how we deal with problems in the world has been more formed by the world rather than uh, Scripture and the Gospels and the words of Jesus. So I want to lay out the words of Jesus today. I want to lay out the law, and I want to hope that, uh, that we'll continue on God's journey toward the future that God intends to bring. Before I do that, I want us to pray together. God, we, uh, we call out to you this morning in a world that knows violence well. And our prayer is that you would move and you would act to bring your intended end to all things. And that we would be instruments of your peace in the midst of this world full 
of violence. Now, there's so much, as Christopher said earlier, that we don't understand. But our trust is that farther along this journey, we will understand better. There will be a day when we will see face to face and we'll understand the things that are unclear today. And I pray today you might peel back the curtain a little bit, that you might reframe our lens and our understanding of how to interact in the world, and that you would help us to uh, not be defensive from the imagination that we've received from the world, but that we would be empowered and inspired by the words of Scripture and the words of Jesus that give us a vision of how to live as a tribe that's ahead of our time. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there are many problems that God tries to overcome in the pages of Scripture. But one of the primary problems is the problem of violence. And yet, our culture's obsession and allegiance to violence blinds us to this constant theme in the Bible. The first sin committed outside of the Garden of Eden was a sin of violence, right? It was this cold-blooded murder of Cain killing his brother Abel. And the violence doesn't end with Cain. It only multiplies from there. It's like a genetic trait that gets passed on generation after generation. And so Cain's great-great-great-grandson is a guy named Lamech. And uh, I want to read his story a little bit to you. I want to go a couple places in Genesis this morning as we track this theme of violence and its growth on the earth. Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, we hear about this guy named Lamech. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. See, the sin of the ancestor multiplies 11 times in his descendant Lamech. This is the way that sin works. Sin escalates. Violence is like a gene that just builds up ahead of steam through the generations. And eventually, Lamech ends up having a son that you know better, a son named Noah. And we read Noah's story in Genesis chapter 6, and we discover that part of the reason that God wants to step into the world with the flood is because of this violence that's been increasing. Listen to God's description uh, through Genesis, in Genesis 6 verses 11 to 13. I want you to pay attention to the why. Why is God sending the flood? It's pretty clear in these verses. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So what does Scripture tell us real simply about why the flood comes on the earth? It's because of violence. Violence is the problem that God is trying to find a solution to. And why is violence, why is murder such, a, such an awful thing? Why must it be corrected and paid attention to, and why must there be consequences? And uh, it actually tells us after the flood. Uh, it reveals in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, God addresses that very thing. Listen to this. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Why is taking a life such a big deal? Because the image of God is stamped on every human being. 
And after Israel has experienced 400 plus years of brutal and violent slavery in Egypt, God takes his first steps toward trying to fix this problem of human violence. In the Ten Commandments, God clearly commands as one of those ten, do not, you shall not murder. And later in the prophets, God gives hints. And I want you to hear this, that there's a place where, where, where God starts, right? He has an, a point A, that's Lamech, that's Cain, that's violence that God is trying to take somewhere. But eventually this is going to get to a Z, and that's what God begins to point to in the prophets, is he begins to talk about the day of the Lord. Talks about this day in the future when God is going to make things right. And there's a lot of things that we can teach and read from Scripture about what the quality of that time at the end of the age is. But I want you to notice how Isaiah the prophet talks about this. Micah actually talks about this as well. But this is Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verses 6 through 9. And listen uh, to these pictures and to the prominence that peace plays uh, in this picture of the future that's to come. Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's uh, den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. See, the animal kingdom is going to be at peace in every way. It's going to be a restoration of Eden is really what's described here in many ways, right? And then again in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, listen to this future promise and hope. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is God's desired future. God desires peace. God longs for the day when we will not create weapons or need to train for war anymore. But here's the question at hand in this sermon. And this sermon uh, and this this, this understanding of Scripture, I think, helps us in so many other ways with so many other questions we have about what God is up to in the midst of the world with Old Testament passages that say one thing and sometimes New Testament verses that say another. The question is this, how will God move the world from the violence of Cain at point A to the pictures that are given in Isaiah chapter 2 and chapter uh, 9 or 11 there, this picture of what the day of the Lord's going to look like at the end? How is God going to bring that to pass? How does God help a people whose imaginations have been formed to believe that violence is the only way to solve conflicts, to imagine a more peaceful way? How does God move things from point A to point Z? And here's what God chooses to do. God knows that He's not going to be able to move people in an instant from A to Z. We're a slow people that take time and progress along the way. And so what God does instead is God chooses to patiently take his people one click at a time from A to B, from D to E, from M to N, from S to T, until eventually God is going to bring all things together as God intends. So God chooses with each one of us to patiently wait with us, to patiently take us from one step to another because A to Z is just too much for any of us to handle. God chooses to patiently lean in with us and invite us forward which is what it always takes with a beginner, right, of anything. 
Anything that you're an expert in, you've got to teach someone who doesn't understand what it's like, you're going to have to slow down your process to help them understand the steps to get to the final product. And that naturally brings me this morning to the Rubik's Cube. So I want to invite Van Billingsley up to the stage right now. Van is our resident uh, Rubik's Cube expert, if you didn't know that. And uh, there may be others of you that have this gift. Uh, It is not one I have, I'll assure you of that. So this is a Rubik's Cube. It's a little bit uh, different than maybe the one you've seen. I'll promise you there's no pulling apart or there's no trick here. This is not a magician's trick. But uh, Van, I I don't have my microphone with me actually to ask you a couple questions here. Let me grab that real quick. So my question this morning to start out, Van, is obviously you weren't born with this gift, right? <laughs> you had to develop this gift along the way. You had to work at it. You had to train for it. What was it that got you interested in this, or who was it that introduced you to how to, to go about doing this? Well, in about third grade, uh, my, one of my good, really good friends um, figured out how to solve it, and he had one. So he eventually taught me how to do it, and then I really got into it, and I was able to solve it pretty quickly. So I'm sure this, you've gotten faster, right? What's the fastest time you've ever had solving the this size Rubik's Cube? I yeah. have 49 seconds. 49 seconds. Yeah. All right. So pretty good, right? I mean, any, I won't ask if anybody can beat that, but I can't beat that. I'll show you that. So um, it took you like training and like figuring uh, it out. There's an algorithm to it, right? There's yeah, a way to do it. There's a lot of them. Which you could teach someone, probably, yeah. but we want to see this first because no one wants to learn from somebody that can't do this. So you've got to prove this to us. So let me, let me mix this up a little bit more so we're ready. Yeah, turn your back. We don't want any excuses here. Yeah. All right. I think I've, that's the last one. Yeah, there's no way you can do this one. All right. So what we want to do is we want to root Van on. We're going to put a timer on the clock because we might have a world record here. We might have a personal best. Uh, but here, let's see, let's see you pull this off. Yeah, you can root them on. You can cheer them on. <laughs> Go for it. Oh, I'm sorry. We're start- yeah, the clock started. I'm sorry. It looks pretty chaotic so far. We're going to see if this gets some order here. We're all rooting for you. We're getting progress. All of you might have gotten to this point before, right? Yeah, that's right. was a minute 15, I think, but we started the clock early, so really close to a minute. Thank you so much, man. I'll let you take that back with you. I've got your other one to give you in a minute. Yeah, give him a hand. I mean, the pressure, right, in front of, that was, that's impressive, I got to tell you. And when you think about this, right, I mean, Van's starting with this thing that's in chaos, right? I mean, I, created the chaos out of something that was ordered before, right? And step by step, click by click, 
Vans learned a way to try to do that to put things back together. Now, if I, some of you may be interested in getting lessons from Van, he charges a pretty high rate. I want to let you know that. So uh, make sure you make a business out of this, Van. This is a skill no one else has in here, right? But if he were to take uh, any one of us and try to teach us how to do this, I mean, he has his way that's fast, right? He's developed that over time, but he would have to break this down for us. He would have to help us understand the, the system because there's a system to do this. It's not just turning dials and it finally kind of works out the right way. It's a, it would take a process. And he would have to be very patient with any of us that would learn, right? Slow down to make sure that we see the step-by-step process. There, there's a method to that madness. And I want to suggest to you that this is what God does every time there's a problem in the world with us. God chooses to step in and invite us forward one click at a time until we move from order back to chaos, from chaos to order, from violence to peace. In the commands that follow the Ten Commandments, God shares more details about how serious He is about violence and murder and what should be done in the case of injury or death. One of those places I want to go to is right now is Leviticus chapter 24. This is a passage that many of you probably heard read. It's something that even people who aren't Christians or or Jews and don't know the Bible all that well, they've heard it referenced in relation to the law and so forth. Uh, Leviticus 24 takes Israel from what I would say is step A to step B. So I want to read this from Leviticus 24 verse 17 and following. Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution. Life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. You've heard this before, haven't you? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It doesn't exactly feel like a step in the right direction, does it? This seems regressive, this seems barbaric. Does it seem like this is a move toward peace on first glance? That command doesn't seem to move us in the right direction. It seems like a a suggestion that a person can retaliate for an offense committed against them. It seems like God is advocating for violence and retribution. And I believe with a closer look, we've misunderstood this. We've misunderstood this command in our culture. Because in our culture, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth has become a justification for revenge, retaliation, and violence. And if you grew up in America, especially if you grew up watching television or going to the movies, you've been trained by a particular myth about the way the world works. It's the myth of redemptive violence. It's the myth that, if, that violence can somehow bring us to a place where peace can ensue. And I know all of a sudden this already kind of gets kind of your, your defenses up because we are so trained to believe this that we miss, I think, what this passage is doing and what Jesus is going to call us into. Because the vast majority of cartoons or superhero movies have a consistent plot to them. The good guy uh, is here to take care of the bad guy. The good guy, though never truly in danger of dying, struggles mightily through the first three quarters of the show to overcome almost certain defeat at the hands of an evil villain. Until miraculously the hero breaks free, vanquishes the villain, and restores order until the next episode or the next summer blockbuster. Take Popeye, for instance, your favorite sailor. You know what's going to happen in every episode if you've seen Popeye before, right? 
There's going to be this antagonist, this evil guy named, well, he's named Bluto at one point in the story. Brutus, you may have grown up with different pictures. But this bad guy's there. He's going to be there to harass olive oil. And then what's going to happen? Popeye is going to be strong to the finish because he eats his spinach, right? This is the way the story goes. He beats up Brutus and he restores order to this picture. Now that is actually the myth of redemptive violence at play. If we want to redeem a situation, we have to be prepared to use violence to fix things. And because we've seen this myth played out so many times, we begin to believe this myth. The myth of redemptive violence is compelling. There's a clear evil character. There's a clear bad, uh, uh, good character. And violence seems to neatly fix the problem. But that's not the reality in our world. There may be a few percent of people who are nearly always good. There may be a few percent of people who are nearly always evil. But the truth for most of us, if we're honest, is the line between good and evil runs right through the middle of every one of us. It's never that simple. And in some ways, this is what I appreciate about the latest uh, Marvel movies or some of the latest uh, of our favorite shows out there is before it was just good and evil, dark and light. It was so clear who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. But who do you root for in Breaking Bad? Who do you root for in some of these stories where there's this complexity to these stories to realize that not everyone is good or bad? There's a line that runs through each one of us. So my question is, how is this command from God, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, moving humans from A to God's eventual endpoint at Z? How does this command help us move one step closer to order, to peace? And that's where we need to take a deeper look at this command. In fact, this command is often referred to as lex talionis, which is a, a Latin term that basically means the law of punishment that is identical to the offense. And if you don't believe this, this is actually a useful command or isn't taking us somewhere, you've never been to summer camp before. Because if you've ever been in a, a guy's cabin, and I assume the same thing probably goes on in girls' cabins from time to time, there is a way things work. There are pranks that are played on cabins, right? And usually they have in the middle school years to do something with bad smells. Cabin one plays a prank on cabin two. And then cabin two pulls a prank on cabin one, always escalating and making sure they get back a little bit more. And then cabin one raises the ante on cabin two. And all of this goes on back and forth until the camp director puts a stop to it or the authorities are called in to fix it. We live in a world that knows escalating violence all too well. One side bombs uh, one group and then they're going to lob the bombs back. Revenge is the currency we trade in internationally today. But it's also the currency we trade in in interpersonal relationships with relatives. One side of the family says ugly things about the other side. One Christmas the family stops gathering and then a generation later we know, well, we don't talk to that family. We're just not sure exactly what got it started. From our civilized legal system, we wonder though, well, couldn't they have offered jail time instead of cutting off a hand? Couldn't they have put in community service to make sure that all requirements and justice is shown and lessons can be learned? Most of us misunderstand eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth because we see it as a barbaric legal process that forced more violence than was needed. But eye for an eye, truth for a tooth was a revolutionary legal procedure that stopped this cycle of escalating violence. That's the natural way the world works is one party does one thing and the next makes sure it's more. What this command ensured was that there wasn't going to be violence that continued to escalate 
It was this, and then you can do the same back. It created a form of justice. Now, does that make any sense? Does that help a little bit? Because I think we often think about, you know, quotes that have been said about eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But there is a point at that point in the journey from A to Z that God's trying to take Israel somewhere. This is revolutionary. This is a law that's ahead of its time. Now, is the Rubik's Cube solved at this point? No. It's a click. It's a step in the right direction. And when Jesus arrives, he has a plan to, continuing, to continue to offer a solution to the problem of violence at his time, at his place, with the click that he finds his people at. Jesus took a group of people who were not living in a peaceful world, and he helped them take the next step, move to the next clip with his teaching and his example. And you can see Jesus take the Rubik's Cube and move it a few clicks forward in Matthew chapter 5. Turn with me there if you would to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says some counterintuitive things in that day. And I'll tell you, it's still counterintuitive today if we listen closely to these words. But he quotes this Lex Talionis eye for an eye passage and he does something different with it. Listen to this. Matthew 5 verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other uh, cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now what is Jesus doing in this passage? Is he contradicting God's law in the eye for an eye saying? Why would he quote eye for an eye and then do further teaching past what the Torah, what the law had already given. Is he abolishing the law? No. In fact, look what he says a few verses before in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I mean, he's starting in a place, God, trying to stop this escalating violence going back and forth. But when Jesus steps in, he's taking things not from A to B. He's taking them from M to N. He's taking them from S to T. He's trying to say, look, you're at a new point in the game. And yes, you stop that escalating violence when you follow that command. But there's a step further to take. What it means to fulfill the law is not always to follow the letter of the law. It's to follow the spirit of the law that's heading someplace. Jesus came to take Israel, not not from A to B, but from M to N to S to T. God spoke to people where they were in the Old Testament law. He limited escalating violence with his command for an eye for an eye, but, but God's original command isn't the final goal of where God's taking this. And Jesus has come to fulfill that law. Jesus has come to help people take the next step they need to take, and it's a big one. Because Jesus believes people are capable of growth. Jesus believes in the future God wants to bring to earth. And when the Spirit of God comes on these apostles in just a few chapters, a few months later, years later, that's going to continue on. Remember what he prayed. Jesus' prayer was, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. What that is, is it's a prayer toward the future because there is a realm where things are as they should be. In heaven, things are as they should be. God uh, hovers and rules over that reign just as God wants to make this world submit to his reign. And what Jesus is praying is, we're in this present moment, but our prayer is that you would bring the future into the present here on earth. 
There's a space where God's will is fully done, and we want to inhabit that world here and put it on display. And so we're invited to live in tune with that future. We pray God's future kingdom to earth now. We are to live as people of the future. As citizens of heaven who live as a different kind of tribe from the future. And what does Jesus tell us to do? He says, don't resist an evil person. Turn the other cheek. And later in verses 43 and following, it gets even more radical. Listen to this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See, it's not enough to just step from A to B and limit violence escalating. Jesus says, no, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're praying the future to earth now, and we live in tune with that future. We are called to love our enemies. Jesus is taking the law. And he's saying, you've heard that it was said, but let me tell you what it means to fulfill that. Early on in the Ten Commandments, what God's saying is, could you just not kill each other? Some of you have been parents and you've basically had the same talk, right? Could you just not send us to the hospital today, right? But there comes a point where hopefully they grow to the point that you're able to say, let's stop this back and forth. And eventually, you've got to be for your brother or sister. Not just about the tribe within here. You're actually supposed to be good for all of humanity, right? This is the gift that we're supposed to give our kids. Is in a world of tribalism, sometimes what's good for the tribe isn't good for the world. In Nazi Germany, when you raise your children in the way of Jesus, you don't want them following the church that continues to support the Nazi empire. You want them to be able to say, I'm not walking off the cliff. I'm following the commands of Jesus to live in a new way with the confessing church. We don't want our kids to follow all the norms of the society. We are training them to live in tune with the fulfillment of the law. So Jesus comes and he says, can you not just stop escalating violence? But he ends up saying, greater love has no one than this, that they laid their life down for one another. Now to go from please don't kill each other to can you love with such devotion that you would give up your life for a friend or an enemy, that is a massive leap, right? That's an A to Z move. And none of us can get there in a moment. It's quite a growth curve. And in 2019, it feels like we're going backwards sometimes, doesn't it? We live in a violent time. We live in a culture that is obsessed with violence. We've been duped to believe that stockpiling weapons is the route to peace. We have to think hard about how backwards that is because we have been schooled to believe that's the way this works. That the more we have, the safer we are. But that's madness. You realize that in 2017 that the United States has 4,018 nuclear weapons stockpiled and ready for use? And do you know how many weapons it would take to be dropped in order for the world to be unlivable? 100. Just think about that logically for a minute. Why would we need to stockpile more weapons than the world can even be livable with? Do you know uh, how much money is spent on conflict prevention in our world versus conflict acceleration in our world? The world spends $1 on conflict prevention for every $1,885 we spend on military budgets around the world. What's going to win when our economics fund this sort of thing? And in the U.S., youth homicide rates are more than 10 times that of other leading industrialized nations. Violence causes more than 1.6 million deaths worldwide every year. And what Jesus is saying is, 
you've got to think in a new way about this. You've got to imagine where I'm taking things. You're praying heaven to earth, and that means your imagination can't be formed by the way things were. Your imagination is supposed to be formed by the way things will be. There is a spirit at work through all of it that is drawing and inviting us forward past the toxic patterns of behavior so that we might experience the divine life all the more. I believe Scripture is inviting us to follow toward that future. I believe God's ahead of us. And in that future, the lion will lie down with the lamb. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And won't that be a wonderful day? Farther along. And yet, God's invitation to us now is to live in tune with that future rather than living in tune with the rules of the world as it is. We are people of the kingdom, which means we are people of the future. We pray God's kingdom to earth, but we don't just pray it and leave it up to God. We put into practice these ways of God's future in the present moment. And will it come at a cost at times? Absolutely. Will we get questions from people who wonder, why would you live in such a bizarre way? And our response is, well, we're training to be used to the way the world will be. And we're trying to live that out in ways that may be a cost to us. Did it cost Jesus? Absolutely. Jesus was crucified because of this commitment that Jesus had to teach and to live in this way. The apostles' commitment to loving their enemies and practicing nonviolence led to 11 out of 12 of them being martyred for their faith. It is quite a calling we have received. And is it foolishness according to the world? Absolutely. But I don't think many of us understand how much we have been formed by the ways of the world to see that violence is the way that things are accomplished. It is the means through which somehow God's kingdom is going to come. We've got to retrain our imaginations in line with the future of what God's going to do. And will we live out of step with the world? Absolutely. But this is the way of Jesus, and this is the way of his followers, and this is what we are invited into as well. It's quite a calling we've received. Over the last six weeks, now seven, I've tried to share a story about a God who is ahead of our time about scriptures that look primitive, that look barbaric, but in their time, they're trying to take things forward. This God we worship created the world out of creativity and joy rather than the stories of other gods that created out of violence and carnage. This God, this God started a tribe that was meant to bless all the other tribes on earth when all the other tribes lived to justify and secure themselves. This is the God who cut a covenant with humanity and said, it's going to be my faithfulness that's going to invite you into this tribe, not your faithfulness. You're welcomed in. You're my child. This God heard the cry of people in the Exodus, remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and liberated those people from bondage. This is the God who gave people the Ten Commandments and 603 more to teach them how to be human in the midst of a world that has taught them to be more like animals or property. And this God didn't demand child sacrifice like all the other gods because this God's up to something new. And this God invites us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. We serve a God who is ahead of God's time. But serving this God means we also are invited to step into a new calling, a new way, and to pray God's kingdom to earth. We are people of the future, God's future. We are people who are called to live ahead of our time.
Let's live like it, church. Let's pray as we close today. Father, uh, I thank you for this word, for these scriptures, for some of these stories that look backwards that you've helped me see are actually ahead of us. They were ahead of Israel then, and many of them are ahead of us still today in our world. God, I, I can't imagine all the ways that I've been formed to believe something other than Jesus' way through so many influences that I had nothing to do with. God, it's hard to reframe a lens. It's hard to uh, be initiated in the kingdom of God when there's so much of our lives that are forming us in other ways, other places. So God, I pray you would give us discernment. That you would help us to be people who read your word and are shaped by your son's life and example. And who would live that out in the current age so that people might ask, why in the world do you people live like this? Why in the world do you people who believe so differently find a way to be united under the same banner of Christ? And our response is, well, we're people of the future. People that are praying God's kingdom to earth and and we want to live like it too. So God, I pray that you would continue to form our imaginations. You would help us to see. You would help us dig into Scripture even more deeply to know our story and our calling and the covenant that's been given to us. We thank you that you walk through the pieces of the animal, and that your faithfulness is what is dependent, not ours. We thank you for your forgiveness and for your grace. We thank you for your high calling, and it's something we want to live up to. And I thank you for the patience that you give to us step by step in our own lives. And I pray that I and all of us can learn to give that same patience to others. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Connect with us on Twitter. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.